Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Les Zeckley has a bit of a cult following as an angel investor. After multiple successful exits, he has a reputation for finding great founders, then backing them with boundless energy, creativity, and the humility to know when to get out of the way. Les's path to investing is a bit unusual. He got a taste for the power of business when he established a thriving clothes retailing operation as one of the first clothes stores at Paddy's Markets in Sydney in the 1980s. He used the savings to backpack around the world for 18 months and then returned to teach commercial law at New South Wales University and revenue law at Sydney University. From 1987, he became a tax consulting partner with Haworths and then at Deloitte's. He's written several books, he's given multiple lectures, and then he learned how to lead marketing through financial media PR. In his heart, though, Les always remained a businessman and a deal doer. He started Angel Investing in 1999, and since his first substantial exit in 2004, he has increasingly involved himself in the world of angel and VC investing. In 2009, he finally left Deloitte to dedicate his efforts entirely to angel and VC investing. Whilst Les continues to invest as an angel personally, he co-founded the VC funds manager EVP in 2014. He now actively manages through EVP with his partners over $130 million of VC funds. In addition to this, he also spends his time as a non-executive director of several startups and is a very sought-after mentor for founders. Hello, Les. Great to see you. Catherine, good afternoon. You're a busy man, so I feel very privileged that I get to spend some time with you. You have such an interesting background. Can you share a little bit about how you came to find yourself where you are today? I'll start right at the very beginning. My parents came here as refugees from behind the Iron Curtain, which meant that you know, during my childhood, let's just put it this way, we weren't, we weren't flush with cash. My, my father worked you know, very literally seven days a week, a full-time job and two part-time jobs. So I grew up in an environment um, with a great respect for hard work and frugality and saving. They're things that have stuck with me through my life, even though uh, thanks to the hard work of my parents, they got established here and allowed me to get an excellent education. But really, that, that, they're the sort of formative things, the formative years that inform how I view the world. Winding forward, I got into a VC investing through circumstance, not by design. Back uh, in 99, 2000, it was a dot-com bubble. And a gentleman that I had a loose social relationship with came to see me with a plan to sell cars on the internet. Now, for those viewers who are a little younger than myself, 
back in 99, the dot-com bubble, people were throwing crazy amounts of money at anything that was on the web. The web was very mature and really, um, to give you a feel for the era, one of the issues was that people were saying, oh, no one's ever going to you know, type in or give you their credit card number on the internet. That'll never happen. So this gentleman, his name is Leon Kamenev, um, came to see me, wanted to sell cars on the internet. He was the firm where I was a partner, a chartered accounting firm called Horwitz. We had a specialisation in, in vehicle dealerships. And after some discussion with him, I worked out that he got the idea about the internet, not from cars, but because he was uh, an inbound tourism operator, which means a tourism operator that doesn't normally deal with the public, but deals with overseas travel agents. So in those days, people booked their um, travel and accommodation through travel agents. And the way the travel agents organised the land content, which is 80 90% hotel rooms, was by contacting an inbound tourism operator in the country where their client was going, and that party would have access to hotels at wholesale rates, and indeed rates good enough that they could make a margin as well as the foreign travel agent. So that's what Leon was doing, and he'd started selling hotel rooms direct to the consumer online, and that's what gave him the idea that this crazy new thing called the internet might go somewhere someday. So I helped him work out that uh, selling cars was not a good idea because he had no expertise, no content, no product. But hotel rooms, in a, in a very basic way, he was up and running already selling those. And there he actually had the content. That became a business called Hotel Club. And the interesting story about personalities and investing is I worked intensively with him for probably two, three months, putting together an information memorandum. And this was in the days pre-PDF. Um, information memorandum was a spiral-bound hard copy was the main document. And the spreadsheeting work, the business plan, was done not on Excel, but on a thing called Lotus123, for those of you who are tech historians. Anyway, that, that's how I got my start. We got the information memorandum ready. I think it was the same week the dot-com bubble burst. An interesting anecdote about people and personalities is as I said, I was a partner with a chartered firm called Horwitz. And I said to my partners, look, guys, all of a sudden the world's turned topsy-turvy. The bubbles burst. This professional job I've been working on, they're not going to raise the money. I'm going to invest in this myself. And because we did the project work as a firm matter, I think it's only right to offer all of you the opportunity to invest on the same terms as myself. We had circa 17 or 19 partners at the time. And interestingly, not a one of them was interested in investing in something as bizarre as the internet. I followed through and you know, Hotel Club was a, a great success. About four years later, it was exited to a large US multinational. When I say large, it owned businesses like uh, at the time, such as Avis and Sheraton. So needless to say, that was an excellent outcome for Leon and myself. And it was really through that exercise that I learned the basics of um, what today is called you know, startup and venture capital. That terminology was not widespread then, but yeah, that's how I started. And what's so fascinating about that is I think that corresponds with what observations have been made about people who come from professional services and how they perform as investors. So I think there's sort of a, a bit of a trope that people who are financial services people don't make very good investors because they're, they're sort of, 
used to telling people their opinion but not necessarily used to, you know, having skin on on the line. And I suppose I want to fill in the gaps, which, you know, makes you different from other professional services people because, you know, it seems like you were really entrepreneurial right from an early age. So, you know, you, you during university had a, a clothes selling stall at Paddy's Markets in Sydney. How did that come about and how did that sort of experience of being responsible for making your own money shape some of what you did next? Well, that particular story is uh, when I was in university, uh, my mother was working for a ladies' wear um, importer wholesaler. Back in those days, due to quotas, um, there was almost no clothing manufactured in Australia. She came home one day and said, look, she'd had customers in, bought a lot of stuff. I said, oh, what have they got, like a chain store or something? And she said, no, they've only got... Uh, one shop, but they sell stuff at the markets on the weekend. And she thinks that's where they sell a lot. Now, in those days in Australia, it was not legal to open a business on the weekend, I think with the exception of family-owned businesses where the only staff were family. So really, for entertainment or shopping, there was nothing to do on Saturday and Sunday. And the markets were a great place. I'd, I'd never seen them before, but I was interested in my mother's story. I went and had a look. My eyes almost popped out of my head as the crowds of people and the cash changing hands, credit cards even were not much in vogue, especially in the markets. I said to my mother, look, can we start, can, can we get some stock on consignment? Because as a wholesale business, they're, they're closed on um, the weekends. Can, you know, can I get stuff from you on Friday, bring it back on Monday? And that's how we started the markets. Geez, within a couple of years, I was a full-time law student, but within a couple of years, we had up to a dozen people working on Saturday and Sunday. I was doing markets most weeks, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 50, 60 hours a week, plus a full-time law degree. They were actually good days, and I made uh, enough money. My, both my parents ultimately left their day jobs and carried on that business. I left and um, when I got married at the end of university and had enough savings with my wife to go backpacking the world. So that, that's a story about how I got my start in business. Can I come back on your comment about financial people as investors? I don't regard myself as a sort of as a person from financial background. I think it is more about having an understanding for business and having learned that at the grassroots through personal experience. There's no better teacher than having to buy and sell and employ staff, you know, do the till at the end of the day, price the stock, know when you've got to get rid of stuff at a loss. There's a lot of learnings that are really grassroots and I think equip you well for understanding any business. So I draw a distinction between people who have a business background and those that are financial in the sense that they, they went to uni, they got a job at a, a big bank or investment bank and have um, advised on lots of large transactions with large names attached to them. I think those people uh, don't have the same uh, grassroots gut feel for what makes a business tick. Uh, but it's interesting because, you, as you say, you you know qualified as a lawyer, tax specialist, and I think sometimes when, uh, particularly in sort of partnership models, there's a sort of conservatism that seeps into to how those sort of high status careers evolve and it and sort of feels like your background helped you be immune from feeling like this is the only thing I'll ever do and allowed you to go on and do you know other creative interesting things yeah well as I said before it's, it's just a 
simple fact that given the same opportunity to invest in Leon's Business Hotel Club, not a single one of my other partners was interested. And, and I agree with your comment that you know professional firms are certainly conservative. I don't know if I'm that unique. I think it was, yeah, maybe a mixture of background and a bit of good luck. And that good luck has continued because it feels like, you know, a hotel club was not the only good investment that you've made. How have you decided which investments you'll put money into over time? Because my guess is once you build a reputation for being a, an angel investor and you have the capacity, you've made an exit, you know, there's, there's more deals that you look at that you could potentially invest in. What are the things that you're looking for? Oh, look, there's a long list of things when you get into the detail because I've always invested at an early stage, I've never invested in ideas. I've always insisted the business be up and running and have some revenue. So there's something you can assess beyond an idea. Notwithstanding that, it's quite early stage. So it's, it's I think, a mixture of art and science. The science is applied common sense, analysing the business model and assessing whether it's got the potential. And I think the art comes into a bit of a gut feel for the market, the product, the founders, and their ability to deliver. So it's a mixture of art and science. At a high level, I think there's sort of four elements that have to come together. It's got to be the right business model. It's got to be the right time. So I got started when the dot-com bubble burst. A lot of people lost a lot of money at that point of time because what had happened in the markets generally is the world, the first world, become enamoured of new technologies and was pouring money into them because of blue sky potential, but the technologies weren't mature and or society was not ready to adopt the changes on a widespread basis. So it took time for people to be prepared to use credit card online, for example. Right business models got to be at the right time. You're going too early, you're going to do your dough. You're going too late and you're going to do your dough. Right business model, right time. The right founders, very, very important. I often say that getting the first two right, you know, the right business model and the right timing, it's like choosing which, which race to bet on. The uh, harder part for me, and I think for most people, is choosing which horse to bet on in that race. And that's about the founders, their personalities, and their ability to execute. So things like perseverance are of overwhelming importance. Obviously, you know, ethics, hard work, smart, a huge stubbornness coupled with an ability to change when logic actually demands it. And I think the last element is that that there is a degree of luck in all this as well. So you're not going to win them all. But if you get the first three things right, the product, the business model, the timing and the founders, then you're going to have a pretty high success rate. You know, you don't have to be lucky every time. So can we talk about a couple of your successes? So I think um, you had a successful exit with the listing of uh, SiteMinder not that long ago. What was it about that business that attracted you to make the initial investment and to keep the faith all the way to an IPO? I'm still on the SiteMinder board and I think this is year 15 by now. So it's another little aside, something I tell founders very frequently is it takes at least a decade to be an overnight millionaire. So that's another lesson in investing. If you get a pitch that says, look, give us, give us your money now and in three years we're going to exit for a zillion dollars, the founders are probably either disingenuous or, or naive. <laughs> but with that aside, the SiteMinder story, um, what SiteMinder does is it helps, it connects hotels to the retailers of hotel rooms 
So companies like Bookings.com, Agoda, Hotels.com, most people don't think about it, or they or either that or they assume that those are online, they're called online travel agents in the industry. Those online travel agents have a direct computer-to-computer -computer connection to the um, hotels, and that's how they sell hotel rooms. Now, that's generally not the case, and that's because there are, there are a multitude of disparate hotel systems, and the hotels want to control what rooms an online travel agent has access to. They won't give one of them all their inventory. So at busy times, they might not want to allow third parties to sell any inventory. And at other times, they might be happy for them to sell quite a lot. But even then, they might want not one distributor, but six, eight, ten. Some, some big hotels will have 30 or 40 online travel agent resellers because they want business from websites that specialise in weddings or German or Japanese different websites that specialise in different languages and markets. Um, now, to manage your inventory as a hotel um, manager across all those websites, the way it works is, without a business like SiteMinder, is you give them stock on consignment, you take it out of your inventory, you put it into their inventory, and that way they can sell it online. And then you're continually juggling where you might be taking back inventory and giving out inventory and you can go crazy. What SiteMinder does is it provides a sort of central warehouse where because things are digital, you can put your the stock that you want available for third-party sale into that warehouse and it connects to, I think it's something in the order of 150 different resellers. And through the central warehouse, because it's digital, you can control how much inventory is shown as available through each of those resellers. So if you put only 10 in the warehouse and you have 10 resellers, you could have six live in each of those 10 resellers. You don't have to take 60 out of your inventory as you would have to do without a sidewinder. So long explanation. That's what the business does. I understood the need for it because of my experience with Hotel Club. I was introduced to the founders by a mutual friend. So there was you know good trust from the beginning. And I had someone, a third party that I knew well that would trust for their the people I was dealing with would vouch for them. That was the next big one, a 15-year journey. I invested when it was, well, originally it was two guys with a good idea and I met them. I was a director at Deloitte at the time. They came to me thinking I would help them find client money. They hadn't built the product yet. And I said to them, guys, a good idea is worth what you paid for it. Go away and build something and I'll talk to you more seriously. Now, I was just fortunate, given the way SiteMinder turned out, that they did come back eight or 12 months later. They'd originally wanted to leave their day jobs to build the product. That was why they wanted funding. In the end, they did it on the weekends, literally in the garage of one of them, literally. And they were up and running and they had, I can't remember, it was five or 10 arm's length hotel customers. And I said to them, okay, guys, I'll back you, which surprised them. They, they saw me as a Someone to help them raise money. Conjure it. Yeah. Yep. And then I doubled down several times thereafter and, and worked with them, um, again, very intensively uh, over 15 years now. Well, and that working intensively is something I've observed. So I, I had the privilege of working with you on a fantastic company, Compare Club. My observation is you, you as an investor, you're very engaged with the founders. You back management. You want them to be successful. You're not trying to substitute your judgment for theirs, but you're very engaged and involved. Is that how you approach all of your investments? Yeah, look, I've never built a great business. I don't fancy myself as, as 
the smartest guy in the room. But what I think the right investor can bring to a business and to a founder is a breadth of experience and having gone on the journey that the founder is going on, having gone on that journey several times. The name of my personal investing company is Grand Prix Capital. And the story I tell there, people ask me, oh, do you invest in racing cars or something? And the, the story I tell there is, well, A, that was a name, I, a domain I could get for free and a logo I could get for free. It's my background. But I see myself as a little bit like the navigator. I'm not the guy that's driving the car. I'm not the guy that can win the race. But I've been around the track a lot of times. And what I'm fairly good at is helping the driver, the founder, to know what lies ahead, to know where there's a bend around that, that, that corner is going to get sharper as you keep going. So having been around the track lots of times, I can help as a navigator. I'm good at helping them work out when to do the pit stops to refuel for more cash. Because typically a startup will raise anywhere between three and seven or eight rounds before ultimately being sold or listed. And knowing when to do the pit stops is really important, when to refuel with cash. If you you go too early, you're going to undervalue the business, you reduce your chances of winning a big prize. If you go too late, you run the risk of running out of fuel, in which case (laughs) you're out of business or you're raising money at a terrible valuation because the investors smell the blood in the water. So that's the sort of role that I play. And it does have almost the thrill of being in the driver's seat. Being the navigator is not quite the same. Your hands aren't on the wheel, but you're definitely there in the car alongside. And I might add that part of the skill you try to develop is it's important to know when to speak and when to shut up. Just like that racing car driver, founders are often just too stressed to be listening at that, you know, the time you want to tell them something. And when I was talking about you know, knowing what's around the corner, I'll give you an example. A really common thing is founders, if a business is going well and growing quickly, and founders working huge hours and you say to them, look, it's really time we started recruiting whatever it is they need, a CTO, a CPO, a CMO, whatever it is. And very often they say, no, 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 I'm managing. I can cope for a while yet. It's okay. And you're sitting there, look, to find the right person is probably going to take a month or two months. They're likely to be in another job. They'll have at least one month notice for a senior person. Could be longer. Yeah, just humor me. Think about it. It's, it's a really common pattern. And more often than not, they hire too late because the danger is the founder themselves get so busy that they don't have time to recruit or recruit properly. And very often it's the founder themselves that becomes the bottleneck in the business. So just experience with things like that allows you to help mentor founders um, and work with them, even when it's not an industry in which you're an expert. As I said, I've really enjoyed working with you at Compare Club. And one of the things that was, I thought, really successful in that business is the co-CEO model. I think it's unusual for people to be able to sort of share that authority. Do you, you know, have a philosophy on whether a sole founder or multiple founders are a better model or you know, are you open to, you know, however it comes? I've backed, you know, single founder businesses and three founder businesses and two. But my opinion, which my experience, which accords with the research, there's been a lot of you know, academic research done on this by now, is that the chance of success are greatly increased if you have two founders. And interestingly, the stats suggest that they go down a little bit if you have three, and then they go down substantially again if you have four or more. 
So there's sort of something that says that doing it by yourself is incredibly hard and lonely. Two, maybe three is much better. But if you get to more than three, then you may be... Um, <laughs> the, the collective responsibility might be a way of ducking individual responsibility or something like that. So, yeah, my experience accords with the, um, the research. You know, ideally, two founders seems to be best. We've had a couple we're backed with their husband and wife teams. You have to be, obviously be careful with those because other matters than um, business can get into the equation. Yeah. You mentioned before how important it is that you can trust the founders and have that sort of personal connection with them. Do you feel like it's important to also try and look outside your sort of natural hunting ground? Do you have a philosophy of trying to make sure that there's the opportunity to invest in either businesses or people that are a bit further away from, you know, what you're naturally used to? Yes. In, in, in management speak some time back, that used to be fashionable to talk about red ocean and blue ocean. The red ocean is where all the sharks are feeding. There's a lot of blood in the water. And in other words, that's highly competitive. And if you're looking at it from an investor perspective, yeah, there's there's more chance that the pricing on some of the good ones will become, from your perspective, uncommercial. So, yeah, looking further afield for deal flow is definitely something one tries to do. I mean, my own investing activity, you know, I started off you know, solo with that hotel club story I, I told. Now I do most of my investing, not directly, but through a, we've started a venture capital fund called Equity Venture Partners. We're a team of a dozen people now, and most of the team spends a you know, material portion of their time making sure we're plugged into all the usual places for deal flow, whether it be organisations like Startmate, Sydney Angels, the various university incubators. It, it's hard to plug into the unusual places because by definition, they're unusual and there isn't a, a natural um, plug-in or connection, but we certainly are extremely open to deal flow from anywhere and just try to you know, keep the brand name out there um, so people know where to find us if we can't find them. And what is, what's the difference for you in your experience of investing as an angel as compared to investing as a VC fund? Well, I mean, to prevent conflicts, I now won't do larger investments unless the VC fund passes. So I'm restricted to smaller investments are under a million or things that don't fit our VC fund. Look, it, it is different. I think as an individual, there's more scope for risk-taking and gut feel than if you're looking after third-party money. I certainly take the burden of, of looking after third-party third money very seriously. There's a whole lot of you know, regulation and compliance around that as well. But in terms of the investment process, very, very similar. There may be odd cases where something doesn't quite stack on the metrics that I might feel as an individual, this is worth having a go because of chemistry with the founders or it might be really early stage for a venture capital fund that you know, it has you know, such huge potential that I might think as an individual it's worth a punt. But there's actually not a lot of divergence. It's, it's very similar. Again, huge advantage from my perspective is that having a team of a dozen, we actually get huge deal, flow, deal inflow. It's circa 25, 30 a week on average ongoing of incoming stuff. Uh, that's everything from, excuse my French, everything from crap through to, there's about 300 that we have a serious discussion with um, and meetings with per annum. Now, you couldn't do that individually. You need a, a, a team. And because I've grown the team, 
you know, I've been there since day one. We are quite like-minded in our approach to investing. So yeah, it works really well. And are there parameters that, you know, there's some things that the fund just won't invest in? Is there sort of a universe that you stay within? Yeah, look, we're, we're, we're actually very specific and there are, there's good reason for that. So first of all, what are we specific about? We're structured, and excuse the jargon, it's government imposed. We're structured as an early stage venture capital limited partnership, which translated to English means that our investors get a 10% tax rebate on money they invest and profits are tax-free. Now, that's a really big one. If you're looking at your return, you know, a return of um, 25% tax-free is probably better than a return of 45% taxable. So because of that structure, we're restricted. We've got to invest 80% of the capital we raise in fresh, I'm simplifying, but basically fresh capital for Australian businesses. 20% can go into overseas businesses. And it's got to be, I'm oversimplifying, but basically fresh capital, not just buying existing shares from others. It's the oversimplified version. Within that, we've self-imposed the um, restriction that we're heavily focused on business-to-business software-as-a-service models. So very specific universe. I think the classic example that almost everyone knows today is you go to a restaurant and there's a QR code on the table and you you know, order on your phone, a business of that type, its customers are the restaurants, what it provides is the software. They're the types of businesses we invest in. And the reason we're very much limited ourselves is because, first of all, we think it's the best thing to be investing in, in the sense that B2C, for a whole lot of reasons, I think is not the best place to be today for new startups. And go into that if you want to later, but there's reasons we're largely over it with B2C and with um, online marketplaces. Never say never, we've done them, but we think there's, as a generalisation, they're a lot less attractive than B2B. And the reason we love B2B is, is that they're invariably recurrent revenue models. So take that QR code example. Once a restaurant is using that, they're unlikely to ever stop using it unless the restaurant closes or changes hands or unless your product becomes massively inferior to competitors, which is about execution, they will be using that for as long as that restaurant is open. So we love that cash flow. You win that customer once and usually it's monthly for the small business type um, B2B SaaS. That monthly cash flow is then over many years so we love that long customer lifetime value business-to-business model. And there are a whole lot of associated reasons to the main one I've articulated. But the other thing is, from our point of view, if you focus on doing one thing, you develop a hell of a lot of expertise. So it's a little bit like being a doctor. You can be a GP, but then you've got to recognize every conceivable disease when it walks in and know what to do with every possible one. Or you can become a specialist and become really, really good at a narrower field. By focusing on B2B SaaS, there's a whole lot of common features in B2B SaaS businesses that we have identified, that we work with all the time. So similarities in how you should price them. Do you have a flat monthly amount? Is it usage-based? Is it features-based? What mix of those elements tends to optimize your customer revenue and stickiness? 
by and large, B2B SaaS businesses are very similar with respect to things like that pricing matrix for the product. Yeah, things on web design, not that we're web design experts, but you learn from experience from lots of businesses about whether you're likely to optimize conversion rates by advertising um, $10 a month and you can click to get an annual rate or which is you know, $10 a month, $120, or whether off, you're better off um, on your website saying it's $100 per annum or $10 per month. Things like that make a difference on conversion rate and we purport to dictate, but just having a lot of experience with similar businesses where the similarities issues like that, not the um, industry sector, it helps you add value on a board. It helps you ask the right questions. And are you sort of cross-fertilising across the portfolio? You know, when, when you see something working really well, not from a sector perspective, but sort of, you know, from a framework, are you then encouraging other portfolio companies to sort of think about things in a similar way and embrace some of the things you've seen work elsewhere? Uh, exactly. That, that's an, almost another way of saying what I was just saying. I love the fact I'm on, I think it's about nine boards at the moment, I love the fact you go from one meeting to another and almost every time there's a question that arises which you've had an in-depth discussion about, you know, within the past two or three months somewhere else and people think you're very smart. You're not very smart. It's just that you learn from all the founders. They all teach you something. Thank you. And you share it around. That's a part of being a good director and you maximise that value by having a focus, in our case, B2B SaaS. You've had lots of success. Are there any failures, either in your investing or elsewhere in your life, that you feel like you've really learned a lot from? Yeah, failure always teaches you plenty. It's interesting. Yeah, there have been three three cases where things have gone badly. And in all three cases, there were founder difficulties. In one of them, it was about a founder. And it's a common problem successful businesses, successful startups scale very, very quickly and often founders can't grow and change at the same rate. So what happens is they become the obstacle and constraint on growth and if they don't have the uh, maturity to um, see that and, uh, and deal with it appropriately, that can come to a bad end. I've had one case like that and I've had two other cases where to put it at, at at its lowest, the founder's sense of ethical behaviour was not aligned with um, what most people would think. Is there something that people are surprised to find out about you? I don't know. Maybe that I'm kind of simple and grassroots and practical. I, I don't like big language and yeah, big words. Is, is it true you're a black belt in karate? I, I did a martial art called Judo Kwan. I'm now a retired black belt. Once you've got the black belt, you're always a black belt. In terms of things that help you stay informed and, and feed your curiosity. Are there books or podcasts or anything that you would recommend for founders or investors that, that you think would help them? Uh, look, the, the first thing might surprise in that it's very high level and generic. It's not startup or tech related. I'm an avid reader of The Economist. It just gives you a feeling for the flow of the world. They also have good science and technology section. That That's sort of at a very, very high level. And then aside from that, I you know get a whole bunch of different um, blogs. Um, Blackbird, uh, the VC fund, does some good stuff. But yeah, I subscribe to a whole bunch of blogs, Australian and uh, American. Yeah, just, just a lot of general reading. In, in some ways, 
the best teacher is being in the game. So I would personally read three, four, five pitch decks pretty much every week and sit in on probably an average of one pitch a week. And that really does help you keep a feeling for what's happening. So how do you fit it all in? So you're on nine boards, you listen to at least one pitch a week and review, you know, maybe 10 others. What productivity tips do you have? Oh, look, I'm lucky. I just love what I do. You know, it's it's for me now, it's it's not about the money. It's about the um, the game. It's about helping people. It's about building businesses. You know, they create jobs. I love it when my founders um, reap the rewards of, you know, it usually takes about 10 years of risk and hard work and focus. The greatest joy for me is not the financial side of the success, but the uh, people side of the success. And that's what motivates me. And I probably work very long hours. It doesn't feel like work. Like this for me is a joy chatting to you, Catherine. I always enjoy chatting to you. <laughs> what advice do you have for anyone who's thinking about raising capital? Uh, well, if you're talking a VC, or sorry, founder or VC fund context? Founder. Okay. Practice pitching. And when I say practice, have a, a slide deck, have some speaker notes, and then record yourself doing it and watch what it looks like. And I'm sure that you will be embarrassed by yourself and learn. You cannot over-practice pitching. The big majority of founders don't have any public speaking experience. And it makes an amazing difference to your chance of success, whether you can communicate. It's in that interpersonal communication. It's, it's are you making eyeball contact or are you looking at your screen the whole time? If you can communicate passion and engagement and you come across as trustworthy and sincere, they're almost threshold criteria to people considering your business model and your pitch. So you cannot over-practice that, let me call it public speaking element, presentation element is one thing. The other thing is try presenting it to a handful of your least bright friends who aren't from the industry because they will tell you if you're using words that they don't understand. You do not want to have a pitch that has words in it that the average Joe on the street can't understand. And it's actually amazing how often very experienced and successful people come up with pitch decks that are full of acronyms that are industry jargon. Or if you're going to use them, if you have to use them, then spell them out and explain them in the document or in your pitch before you start using them. That's a, that's a couple of real common sense tips. That's such great advice because it doesn't make you look smarter to use acronyms that that investors don't understand. Um, last question, what are you optimistic and excited about? Look, I, I, I'm optimistic and excited about technology in every aspect. My own universe of actual investing is focused on B2B SaaS. I do do a bit of investing through foreign funds in some high-tech stuff, which I don't have the expertise in, and Australia has a shallow market, to be honest. But tech excites me. If only the um, governments and the regulatory bodies and the various ethics committees can manage to be practical, the way they were forced to be in COVID, we really are, I was going to say, on the threshold of a revolution in human society. I think it's an ongoing acceleration of things that started decades ago, that the rate of change keeps going up and up. 
you asked before about a book that um, I'd recommend, again, not directly around investing, but around my enthusiasm for tech. And by the way, I include pharmacology, gene editing, and you know, technology in that broader sense in this. There's a great book, which is called The Singularity is Near, written by Ray Kurzweil. He's, he's a futurist, but his background is, a, is an entrepreneur, built a large company as an expert in artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence itself is going to be transformative. I think we're moving in the direction of the science fiction that's been written in the last 30, 40 years. We're moving in the direction of that becoming the good part of it, reality. So I'm, I'm wildly excited about um, human lifespan, human health, and the automation of most things that we would regard as drudgery. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's, um, I've learned so much from you in real life and even, you know, added to it in um, this conversation. So um, I'm just really grateful that you could spend some time. Catherine, thank you. Always enjoy chatting and thank you very much for the good work we did together. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. I find the investors and entrepreneurs I meet through Scale absolutely inspiring and learn so much from every conversation. If you feel the same and would like to get involved, visit us at www.scaleinvestors.com.au and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks to Buffy Gorilla for her amazing production and to the Scale team who make it all possible. Hope to see you again soon.